Thank you very much for reading, Michelle, and I'm very excited that we are in this new series in Acts. I'm going to lead us in prayer. I'd be grateful if you kept your Bibles open, and actually to start off with, I'd be glad if you put a piece of your anatomy, a finger perhaps, in page 885, which is Luke chapter 24, because that's actually where we're going to start. So page 885, which Michelle read for us at first. Let's pray. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. We thank and praise you, our Father, that today is the day of salvation, that Christ has not yet returned to restore all things, but that we have this opportunity now to receive and to proclaim forgiveness through your living word. And we pray that as we hear your word this morning, you would strengthen us and reassure us of your plans for us and for this world. Amen. Plans. Plans. Are they on track? You'll know that if you've been following the news, Daniel Andrews resigned very recently. That may be a cause of celebration or being downcast, depending where you stand in politics. Though he was famous for, in July, announcing the cancellation of the Commonwealth Games in Victoria. Plans which had been set in place, plans that had to change. Or back in England, where I've been recently living, all the news has been around Rishi Sunak and his changed plans around something called HS2, High Speed Network 2. No longer is it the case that you'll be able to speed from Birmingham up to Manchester. Now all you can do is shuttle between London and Birmingham. I can see everyone's deeply distressed by that and enthralled by that piece of news. <laughs> or think about Donald Trump, who once planned very clearly and to the world that there would be a wall that would be built covering the Mexican border and that the Mexicans would pay for it. But plans which have changed, which have been thwarted. What about God's plans? God's cosmic plans for his world. Is God like Daniel or Donald or Rishi? Making plans, but plans that have to change, plans that are no longer on track. Well, the purpose of Luke and Acts, a two-volume work by the one Gentile author of the New Testament, a magisterial compendium of all Jesus has done and what he's continuing to do in this great volume that we are studying volume two, we have reassurance from God that his plans are very much on track. Nothing changed, nothing thwarted. Despite appearances, his kingdom is advancing just as he promised. All the way back in Luke chapter one, Luke tells us very explicitly the purpose of his volumes. And please don't turn to it, I will turn to it for us. But what he says there, back in Luke chapter 1, is that he has written these things so that you may have certainty, assurance, reassurance concerning the things that have been taught. And so Luke and Acts are two parts of one work. And I want us to turn to Luke chapter 24, verse 44, as I said, and I'm going to read what it says. 
Jesus said to him, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Do you see that? Not an option, not a possibility, but absolutely must be fulfilled. The God of the universe, who we learnt about in Genesis, who knows the end from the beginning, who has planned everything before it has happened, and promised through the Scriptures, the law, the first five books, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so forth, and the writings, the Psalms, the other portion of the Old Testament, has said that it is written and it must be fulfilled, all that has happened about Jesus. And then here is exactly what must be fulfilled in verse verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. There's a summary of Luke's gospel, that the Christ must suffer. It wasn't an accident that he had to die on the cross. That was precisely God's plan. And that on the third day, he should rise from the dead. Part one, Luke's gospel. There's your summary. But that's not all. Just as significant, just as important as part of God's plan, just as much as has to be fulfilled is part two, and that is Acts. And look at what Jesus goes on to say. And, verse 47, this is the summary of Acts, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So do you see what Luke is saying? This is God's plan. Jesus says this is what had to be fulfilled. We've seen part one take place precisely as the Old Testament Scriptures promised, precisely as God intended. But now here in Acts, we see part two, just as important, just as central to God's plan, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed from Jerusalem And then like concentric circles, like a pebble that goes into water and spreads its ripples further and further out to the ends of the earth, the proclamation of this news before Christ returns and restores all things. And so three things from these early verses, this introduction of volume two that Luke writes. And first, and very simply, is that King Jesus has risen. King Jesus has risen. Look with me to verse 3, please, of chapter 1. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. One of the big themes in Acts is witness, that these people who saw Jesus day in, day out for three years, like a video camera, compendium of all sorts of different people seeing him and all that he did as evidence that what happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was profoundly true. Next week, we'll see that with the replacement of Judas, with one who saw Jesus from the beginning of all of his work, another eyewitness. But throughout the Scriptures, we see over and over again that Jesus really did rise from the dead, according to eyewitness evidence. 500 people at one time saw him. And he wasn't some ghost, as we saw at the end of Luke 24. See the footnote there in 
verse 6. So, when they had come together, they asked him, well, actually, the footnote tells us when they were eating together, they asked him. Listen to what happened back in Luke chapter 24. Jesus stood among them and said to them, peace be with you, but they were startled and frightened. And he said, verse 38, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it's I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones. And then he showed them his hands and his feet. And to prove it once and for all, he said, do you have anything to eat? The resurrection of the great and ultimate king of the universe. And they serve him broiled fish. I mean, what a letdown. But it was there to give evidence that he was alive, that he was embodied. And the risen king of the universe now who sits enthroned in heaven is a man with scars who really has risen from the dead, who ate fish with his friends. So Luke chapter 24, verse 44, everything must be fulfilled, part one, exactly as promised in the Scriptures. Jesus has risen, God's anointed King for His world. Very striking that maybe 15 years or so ago now, there were the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. Do you remember them? Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett. One of the very striking things as I looked at the writings of Dawkins in particular at the time was that he never addressed the resurrection. He never looked at the facts because, of course, he knew that if he went too close, he might discover something which people have found time and time again, that you cannot gainsay the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to Chuck Colson, who was famous in the Watergate scandal and became a Christian in his time, I think, in jail. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it wasn't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they could not keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And so for us, we can have great reassurance this morning of what Luke writes in part one. Jesus is risen. Forgiveness is available. Everything that we hear of in the Scriptures concerning Christ, that He should suffer and on the third day rise again, is true. Jesus, King Jesus, is risen. But secondly... And importantly, King Jesus will restore. King Jesus is risen, and King Jesus will restore. Look with me to verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Restoration. The making right of all things. The restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And what the disciples were saying wasn't something out of the blue. This was in the warp and the woof of the mind of the people of Israel because they read the Scriptures. They knew God's promises. They knew the prophet Isaiah. They knew Genesis. They knew that this world, broken as it is, is not as it's meant to be. 
They knew the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 to make of his people a kingdom, not any ordinary kingdom, a kingdom with a king who would put an end to all suffering, to all that destroys this fallen world. I've been on LinkedIn, and I saw that a friend of mine, who I haven't seen since university days, has been organizing a charity, unsurprisingly, rugby match. Because his son died, aged three, of a congenital disease. And he's raising funds to pay for, to raise funds to combat such a disease. What a world in which we live. A world in which death spoils, that the sting of sin so ruins our lives. But there will be an end. Jesus will return. He will restore the kingdom. There will be reunion with the ones we love in Christ. And look with me to verses 9 to 11. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went, as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come. He will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And here is the point. This world is not all there is. The time in which we live is temporary. And Jesus, the ascended king, will return to restore all things to bring an end to suffering, to put everything right. Jesus is the risen King. Jesus is the, rest, is the uh, restoring King. But also, thirdly, King Jesus is rescuing now. Let me get those points again. King Jesus has risen, past. King Jesus will restore future, but between those two bookends is the present time. It's a short time in cosmic history, and it's the time when King Jesus is rescuing. I've had the experience of crossing north of the border fairly recently a few times, and it's been very discombobulating because of daylight saving. One time you're one hour, another time you're another hour. I had to make very sure that this morning I was in the right time zone so that I'd turn up at the right time. What time is it right now? Well, apparently it's 10.45 in New South Wales. Look with me to verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That phrase mirrors what we saw was the summary at the end of Luke's gospel about Acts. And the question is, what time is it now? The time now in cosmic history is verse 8. It is the time of the witnesses going out to proclaim Jesus and his kingdom in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Verse 46 of Luke 24 said, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and die, and the third day rise from the dead. Then part two, repentance for the forgiveness of sins 
should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. That is the time in which we live now. And those three parts of verse 8 in Acts are a summary of what happens in Acts. Chapters 1 to 7, Jerusalem and Judea, starting off with the proclamation to the Jews. Chapters 8 to 12, Samaria, the gospel goes out beyond because of persecution. Then chapters 13 to 28, through the Apostle Paul in particular, the surging of the gospel into Asia, Asia Minor, and then into Europe, and then into Rome at the end, and then into the rest of the world. What time is it? Now is the time of repentance being proclaimed for the forgiveness of sins. The time of rescue before restoration. In verse 8, the disciples asked, is now the time for the restoration to Israel? They wanted it all to end. Of course we want suffering to end and for things to be restored. But they just said Israel. They'd forgotten the rest of Genesis 12. Israel and then to the nations. God's promise of love for the whole world, not just His historic people. And why has Christ not yet returned? Answer, because of the ingathering, because of the rescue of the nations, for the gospel to go out to the ends of the earth for the forgiveness of sins. I've managed to find myself a copy of God's diary, very exclusive, God's diary. And you turn up the pages of God's diary, Sunday, October the 8th, 2023. It's just in shorthand, Porphos, P-O-R-F-F-O-S. I wonder what that stands for. Monday, tomorrow as well, Porphos. Proclamation, it must be, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what's happening. On every day, I look further forward. I can't tell you when the return is. No one knows except the Father. But every single day, what is on God's agenda? The proclamation of repentance. Turn back to Christ and receive complete forgiveness of all your sins and entry into His eternal kingdom. And it is happening. And it has been happening. Just think of this time. In chapter 2, a very small, almost cowardly group of people in a little room. And then, emboldened by the work of the Spirit to begin a movement that turned the whole world upside down, that emptied the temples, that stopped the gladiatorial combats, that raised women to their proper dignity, that stopped infanticide, that for the first time took notice of the weak and the disabled and the slave, that created a new standard of morality based on love and not power. God has been doing it. God has been fulfilling His plan. And there is nothing and no one who can thwart it. And it happened not by themselves, do you notice? Verse 5, very importantly, time and again, in these short verses, Jesus says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then again in verse 8, as we saw, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus, by His Spirit, empowers His witnesses for what purpose? What is a Spirit-filled person or a Spirit-filled church? One that witnesses to Christ. 
the giving of the power of the Spirit for the bold proclamation in the face of opposition. And it's what Jesus, King Jesus, is doing now. King Jesus is, present tense, rescuing. And did you notice that in verse 1? In, this, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Do you see the implication? Jesus did do all that when he was here bodily, but he is now doing this by his Holy Spirit through his body, the church. The word witness in the original is martyr, and it takes on that connotation. In chapter 7, we'll find the first witness or martyr, Stephen who proclaims boldly and is killed, stoned. And so it has always been the case that the witness of the gospel, of this news of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, is met with opposition. No different to Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The opposition that we face today from the secular zeitgeist and culture, through individual hostility, is not unusual. It is perfectly normal. And God's plan is perfectly on track. But it's not the only response. Some will hate, but others will be saved. And so it's about time we drew together and thought a little bit about application. And the first thing I want to say is apply this message to yourself. There might be somebody here this morning, and I hope there is, who has not yet heard that message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What time is it? Today is Porphos. Today is the day of the proclamation of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Everyone else around here in this room, I take it, has received that forgiveness because they've turned back to Christ. And if you haven't yet done it, can I say to you, in the most earnest way I possibly can, do it. Do it today. Repent. But second be reassured. And that's the main thrust and application for us who are believers this morning. I was at the Synod this past few weeks before I was away in Queensland. and I wrote a little bit about it in the bulletin. And there were so many good things about it. But one of the discouraging things was the reality of ongoing, rising persecution of Christians. The imminent possibility of a bill put before the New South Wales Parliament in November, which I've asked you to consider writing against, that will impose the draconian opposition to freedom for Christians and other religions, as is the case in Victoria. A pastor in Victoria sends around a circular, and he he wrote beginning, let me tell you what it's like to live in a totalitarian state. He might be exaggerating a bit, but the clamping down of the freedom of Christians to speak and to pray and to teach orthodox Christian truth is growing. But we should not be surprised. God's plan is not off track. 
God's plans cannot be thwarted. To be a witness, to be a martyr, is to be part of His plan. His plan must be fulfilled. It is being fulfilled. Acts finishes in chapter 28, but we live in Acts chapter 29. And God is advancing His kingdom all over the world, in Africa and in Asia and in South America and even here in Australia, gathering in His people. Repentance, reassurance, but thirdly and finally, rescue. That is that we would be part of this plan. All of us will have our pet projects. You know, I'm a tragic. I'm on the phone all the time at the moment watching highlights of a certain competition in another part of the world. I don't know what you're into. Fabergé eggs, perhaps, or... I don't know. All of us have our projects, and they are fine in and of themselves. But the project that is happening now is God's great project. And surely it behoves us to align ourselves and our priorities with His. I actually chatted to somebody in the 8am, Sonia, you might know her, and she said to me, I have to tell you this, my 90-year-old grandmother prayed and prayed when she was in the nursing home, why, Lord, have you left me here? And apparently she prayed fervently for, for weeks, and then she got the answer in her mind, to be a witness. And from that point on till 105 in the nursing home, every opportunity she had to speak of the Lord Jesus. People would come up, what's the secret of your old age? How did you... So-? Let me tell you about Jesus. Emboldened by the Spirit of God to be a witness. Individually, where we have opportunity, each of us different. We're not the Apostle Paul but has given us His Spirit for what purpose? For bold witness, as we have opportunity. But also as a church. For what are we to be as a church, but to be a witnessing church, a church that is on mission here and in partnership with others all across the world, for which I rejoice with our mission partners. Listen to what David Cook says as a challenge as I was preparing this week. The extent to which a church commits itself to this missionary task is the extent to which it could be said to be Christian. Let me say that again. To the extent to which a church commits itself to this missionary task is the extent to which it could be said to be Christian. Well, my prayer is that we are a Christian church, and that means that we need to be a missionary witnessing church, and that together we would prayerfully, not depending on ourselves, we've got no power, but depending on His Spirit working in and through us in the face of opposition to proclaim the repentance for forgiveness of sins, that is what God is on about right now. Plans change. Rishi, Dan, Donald, but not God's. Praise Him for that truth. We pray together. We praise and thank you, our Father, that your plans are not thwarted, that you are about the proclamation of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the name of your Son, that you've included us so graciously in this, that you empower us by your Spirit individually and as a church for this great task. We pray that you would equip us and enable us as and when we have an opportunity, as you've made us to be those who are part of your great project. And we ask it for Jesus' sake.
Amen.